think it's probably pretty fair to say that we spend most of our lives thinking about what we want out of life. Well, this is what I would like for my life or for my family or for my children or some of you as you care for your parents, for your parents. We think about this is what I would like out of my career, out of school, just out of life in general. But I would say to you that the best way to know a fulfilled life, to know the abundant life that Jesus promises to all who call upon him, who follow him, the best way to truly know all that God has in store for you, that life, is to actually ask the question, what does God want? Because I believe that when we are found walking in what God wants for us, we will actually find in that a life that is much more fulfilled than we could ever plan or map out on our own. Today's sermon is titled, What God Wants. And we'll be in Malachi 6, and with our graduate Sunday, and uh, just felt like it was time to take a, a one-week break from Revelation and kind of focus on this theme, not only for our graduates, but for us, and for us as a, a church to, to dream a little bit, saying, what is it that God wants of us? Students, as you are graduating and as you're, some of you from high school, some from college, and you're going out into the world, each of you have a career that is most likely on your mind. Some of you are not even, you're graduating high school, you're not going to college, you're going right into a career. And each of us have a career. Some of you, your career may be to be a stay-at-home mom, or some of you uh, as grandparents, you're helping raise your grandchildren, and that's your career. Each of us has a career, but some of you may be dentists or doctors or lawyers or nurses or teachers, education in some way. We each have a career, but what comes before your career is your calling as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so as a believer in Jesus Christ, God has a role for you to play in your career. And did you know that there are people in your career that you will reach that I may never have an opportunity to speak to? The people that you speak to, the vendors and the other pe people in your business or those that you meet at conferences or in, in travel in the office, there are people that I would never have an opportunity to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you will. And by the choices you make and the things that you do and the way that you carry your life, you, you have an opportunity to put your calling as a believer in Jesus Christ first and then to see what God wants out of your career. But again, I believe that when we start with the question of what does God want, it's such a different question than most of the world asks, but yet it is truly the path to knowing the abundant life that God has for us. I had a man that I talked to who's a very successful businessman in Dallas, and he told me that he had to take a lift ride to about two hours away to take care of a vehicle the family member had that had broken down, and it turns out that this uh, driver that was taking him where he was going was a believer that had served at a large church in Dallas uh, for 30-something years, and now in his retirement was a Lyft driver, and he had led more people to faith in Christ as a Lyft driver than he had in 30 years of ministry. 
Again, God has people around you to influence in a way that only you can. But I think we must ask first, what is it that God wants? As we come to Malachi 6, we're coming to a minor prophet, Malachi, uh, uh, Micah, excuse me, I think I said Malachi, Micah, and if you're having trouble finding Micah, it's Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, small minor prophet. If you go to the book of Matthew, one of the gospels, you can just turn to the left a little bit and you'll see Micah. We're in Micah 6. Micah was a country boy and he was called of God to go from the country into the city of Jerusalem and to proclaim God's message to the people there. It was kind of a fearful task for him. And the message he was to proclaim was that the people had been sinning against God, that God was going to bring judgment on the city, but that God had a purpose to restore them if they would simply return to him. And as a part of this message that God sent this country boy to the city with, Micah chapter 6, beginning verse 1, reads this, Hear now what the Lord says. This is a prophetic formula, or sometimes we see, thus says the Lord. This is God speaking to his people through the prophet. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So what Micah is saying, what the Lord is saying through Micah is, my people, we've got some things that have gotten out of order. There's some problems here. You're not about what I want for you. You've become about something lesser, and we need to deal with it. So verse 3, he says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. This is picture in your mind almost like a courtroom. God is being called against his people. He's testifying against his people. And he's telling them, what, what do you have that you could possibly testify against me with? He says, verse 4, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now that what Balak, king of Balaam, uh, Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Without getting in all those stories, we don't have time for that. What God's saying is, don't you remember? I brought you out of Egypt, and I protected you, and I brought you through, and I am your righteous God. Nobody else did that. It was me. I am the one who is your Savior. I am your God. I am your deliverer. What, what do you have that you could bring against me where you could fault find with me, where you could say that I've mistreated you, that I've, I've done you wrong? There's nothing, there's nothing that I have done in my dealings with you where you could say God hasn't done right. God has failed us. God's been unrighteous to us. God has lacked in goodness towards us. He's saying, my people, there's nothing that you can testify of against me, but you've sure been unfaithful to me, is what he's telling his people. And so he says, verse 6, what shall I come before the Lord? He's telling them, so how are you going to come before me? And what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? In light of God's goodness, what could I possibly bring him as an offering? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old and that's in essence saying the best that I have will that please him 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Okay, if the best isn't enough, what about the most <laughs> that you could possibly bring? If it's not quality, what about quantity? 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? In, in other words, what, what, what could you possibly give to God? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It's a rhetorical question. In other words, it's saying, look, in light of the goodness of God and the depth of our sin, there is nothing that we can bring that would be sufficient. Then verse 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There are two other passages, I didn't put them in today, but in Deuteronomy 10 and Isaiah 1, they both speak of this, what does the Lord require of you? And it's interesting that when you hear God saying what he requires of his people, do you know what it's not? It's not try to measure up and be good enough. It's not earn my favor through your good works. It's not try a little harder and then we can talk. It's not that. If you look at the passages where it says, what does God require of you? He's speaking to his people in the context of a covenant, people he loves that he has a relationship with. And you know what he's saying he requires of them? He's just saying, just do what is right. Walk with me in my righteousness and know me. That's what's really behind it, is what he's saying is just do what I've commanded you to do as my people so that you can know me. It's the relationship that's behind it. Because when the people are in sin, when they're not walking in righteousness, when they're not doing right, they're far from him. They've strayed from him in their heart and their word and their deeds. And so when God comes to them and he tells them what he requires of them, what's really behind it all is he's saying, just, just come walk with me. Just be my people. And here's what it looks like to walk with me. It's not a set of do's and don'ts. It's not try harder. It's not be better. It's just come be with me. But if we're going to walk with God, we've got to deal with some things, right? Because he is holy. Because he is righteous. Because he is good. And look at verse 8. It says, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. Now, this is not good, better, best. This is the quality of goodness that God is in the sense of like good versus the bad. It is a moral standard of goodness that God is incorruptible. He is pure. He is light. And that's the context here is Micah is saying, he's already shown you what's good. The sin in our hearts, the sin in the people of Micah's day was not because of a lack of knowledge. It was that they had rejected the revelation of God. And in rejecting God revealed, they were rejecting what was good. They were rejecting what was best for them. And he's saying, he's shown you what is good. It, God's will is not hidden, it's, it's revealed. God's word reveals his will and his person page after page after page. It is God saying, here I am, not good luck finding me. It's I'm here, I'm near. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? And I think that's where we begin to struggle. Because as human beings, we don't want anybody telling us what to do. 
We want to figure it out on our own. And you know why? Because if we do it on our own, then we can boast and brag about it. God says, no, if you're going to walk with me, first you need to lay aside all boasting and bragging. You need to understand that I'm holy, you are not. And the only way you can walk with me is because of my grace, because of my mercy. But because I am gracious, because I am merciful, you can walk with me. And you can walk with me in goodness, but your walk with me is understanding that it's about what I require of you, not what you demand of me. And many people come to Christianity thinking that I have troubles in my life, things are going well, or maybe someday I'll have a crisis and I need to add Jesus to my portfolio so that I'll have him there when I need him. And that understanding of Christianity is actually not Christianity at all. That is a a world religion that says, look, if, if I'm good enough, then this God will do what I want for me. But to understand that there is a God that requires things of us means that he is boss that we are not. And even when we think that what God is doing is not fair or good or right or just, it's not because he has failed. It's because we somehow are missing what he's doing. It's because somehow we have missed the mark. It's because somehow we have become absorbed in in ourself or the things of this world. It's not because what he's requiring of us is harsh or mean or bad. It's because somehow we're missing it. And we need him to change us and we need him to transform us. We need him to make us more like Jesus so that we can get it. But much more than that, so that we can walk with him. We know him fellowship with them. You see, if you're holding on to a Christianity that does not prize the value of God's presence above everything else, it may not have the staying power. It probably will not have the staying power when trials come. Because if you don't value God's presence when trials come, and you get angry and upset about God, and you turn from God because those trials come, it's really revealing that there's something wrong with your belief about God. And so he says, he's shown you what is good and what God requires of you. And because he is God, he has the right to require these of you. And if we have a proper relationship with him, then we won't begrudge him requiring things of us. We'll say, God, you are good. And so what you require of me is good. And so thank you, God, that in your perfect plan, you require these things of me as I walk with you. You see the different mindset there? And so what he requires of us, he gives it to us in, with some verbs. It's action. So those of you that are doers and action-oriented, you're going to love this. Here's your to-do list. What does the Lord require of you but to do verbs justly? To do justly. That's the first thing. And the first point this morning about what God wants from you is to keep your hands busy. To keep your hands busy. We talk about there are sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of commission are things that we do actively. Sins of omission is when we withhold the good that we should do. John in 1 John talks about it like this. He says, if you see a brother or sister in need and it's within your hand to do something, but you don't, how can you say that the love of God abides in you? 
James says it this way, faith without works is dead. If you see your brother or sister in need of food or destitute and you tell them, uh, be warm and fed, what good is that? No, faith without works is dead. We are commanded in scripture to be active about works of justice. Now, our current political climate of the day has misrepresented this in acts of social justice and made this a political movement that is far from what God is talking about in his word. You know, what's going on in our Supreme Court and the debate going on there, the sanctity of life is far more than about the case of abortion, but it is very much including that. God values all life from the womb to the grave. And so when the Bible talks about us being about works of justice, if you look through the Old Testament, the way that's described is that we're taking care of the orphans and the fatherless and the widows and those who need an advocate on their behalf. That when the rich and the poor come to a matter of justice, we don't pervert justice for the sake of the rich or those that would benefit us. When God talks about justice, doing justice, what it is is it's actually a reflection of his character and of his nature. Because can you imagine if God saved us based on merit? What if God saved us like we pick basketball teams? If Doug Morgan and I are being picked for teams, I'm definitely last and he's first, right? You got six foot six Shrek and you got five foot eight, you know, Hobbit over here. And based on merit, based on merit, that's how we pick. But aren't you glad that God doesn't pick us that way? That God, in his grace and his mercy, is just in that Christ has died for us, for our sins. That through Jesus, we might be forgiven and God might remain just. And that God can then say, whoever, whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so because of God's nature, because of who he is, because of how he deals with us, he has called us to be about a people of justice. And that includes the womb and the abortion debate and that, that child, that is a child. We see nowadays, you can see the heartbeat as soon as it starts. And we understand this is not just a fetus. This is not a blob. This is a living soul that God is knitting together in his mother's womb or her mother's womb. And it's not just about that, but it's about as people are born and as they're living to still be about works of justice that we don't oppress other people, that we do help the poor and the needy. God has called us to be his ambassadors of justice in this world because it flows out of his character, his nature. So graduates, as you pick jobs, as you pick careers, as God leads you into that, ask about the company that you're looking at being a part of. Is this company a company that's about justice or is this a company that's cutthroat doing anything they can to get ahead? Does this company or operate according to the things of God? Can I operate within my conscience as a believer of the things I'm gonna be asked to do in this company or not? To put your calling before your career. To say whatever career I have, I have to be able to live out my calling first and foremost. To be about works of justice, to do justice, to do justly. But second, 
to love mercy. To love mercy. Second point is to keep your heart broken. Keep your heart broken. You know, how do we do that? There is a child that was born today in another continent, and his family does not have clean water to drink. And he will most likely contract AIDS from a mosquito bite before he's eight years old. Probably only will have one parent because the other has already died from AIDS or some disease. And so you have a child that is born into a situation that we would say, well, that's just destined for failure. But because we don't know that child personally, uh, we just can't go there. But what if that was your child? What if your child awoke today without clean drinking water under the threat of catching AIDS from a mosquito bite and being raised as an orphan? You would do everything you could in your power to take care of your child because you know your child, would you not? But God's Word says that God cares for everybody. He loves the world. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And when we have the opportunity to do good, we should not withhold it. You see, that child that we don't know, somebody else does. And that child matters to that mother. And if we can do anything to help that child as believers in Christ, we should. And that's why I love, as a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, we have our cooperative program that as you give your tithes and your offerings, we send that on to the Southern Baptist Convention. And we are supporting missionaries all over the world that are about works of justice and mercy. I remember when I was uh, at another church and we had a mission focus in Lima, Peru, we actually had people from our church go and partner with some of our International Mission Board missionaries. And what we did is we helped get clean running water to this place in downtown Lima where there was basically a homeless camp in between skyscrapers and there were children born in this homeless camp and they didn't have clean running water and it was just filled with disease and we were able to bring clean running water into this homeless camp and you know what that opened up the avenue for us to do to begin having bible studies and you know what that did that allowed that to be left in the hand of that international mission board missionary to where they formed a church in that homeless community because we were about works of justice and mercy something as simple as bringing water to those that didn't have fresh water And that's what our Southern Baptist missionaries are doing all over the world. But you know what? Locally, that's why I love it that we are a part of things like supporting the Highway 80 Rescue Mission, that we are a part of Sunshine Lighthouse and supporting that women's transitional home, and that we have Justin Hayes here today, who is the director for the Fostering Care, the Fostering Collective of East Texas. But did you know that right here in our community of East Texas, there are more children in the fostering network than we have families that can help? And when these families aren't placed, when these children aren't placed in a family that's here in East Texas where they can be close and have a hope of being restored possibly to their parents or being able to grow up in the the area they started in, they're sent off hours and hours and sometimes days away from East Texas. 
Justin, I know he needs help not only training fostering families, but people that would help babysit. Did you know that you have to be certified uh, to babysit children that are in the fostering network? And so there are parents that are foster parents, but they need certified people to come babysit for them just so they can have a break for a night, to have a date. And so there are opportunities all around us that we can be about works of justice and mercy. Justin is a great one right here that's local. But you know what? I realize that life can seem overwhelming. And some of you, as I look around this room, I know you're doing the best you can just to take care of your family right now. You have family needs in your children's lives and your grandchildren's lives. Some of you are in that sandwich generation. You're taking care of your parents and your kids. So this is not in any way to beat you up or this is not in any way a do more message. But this is a message where God is revealing his heart, what he wants us to be about. Because it's a reflection of the gospel. And if we truly know God and we understand the gospel, we've been transformed by the gospel, then we will be about works of justice actively. Then we will be about works of mercy. We'll keep our heart broken for those around us that when we see those in need that we do what we can. And even at times we are pursuing it. We are pursuing. That's what it means to love mercy. When you love something, you're pursuing it, right? And so what God is calling us to do is not to sit on the sideline and wait to be asked, but to pursue works of mercy and love and kindness and goodness. Jesus has said, go into all the world and make disciples. We are to go until he tells us to stop, not wait until he says go, because he's already sent us. And so we are to pursue works of mercy and justice. But then third, Verse 8, it says, and to walk humbly with your God. And the third point today is to keep your head bowed. So keep your hands busy, keep your heart broken, and keep your head bowed. You know, I had a preaching professor one time that just blew my mind on a, on a passage. All pretty familiar probably with Philippians 2. talks about Christ, how he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. And because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're probably pretty familiar with that passage, right? Did you know in Philippians 2, the first three verses actually set up that whole passage so much better. I remember the preaching professor pointed this out. It blew my mind. You know, in the first three verses of Philippians 2, what Paul says there to the church at Philippi, he tells them commands like this. The word mind is used repetitively. He says, um, have this mind towards one another. Help one another. Don't think of yourself uh, more highly than you ought, but think of your other brother, in essence, is better than you. Think of the needs of others around you. Paul starts those first three verses of Philippians 2. Everything in those verses is about how, as believers in Christ, as the church, our mindset should be, uh, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? How can I see you exalted? How, how, how can I humbly uh, take the seat uh, of dishonor so that you might have a place of honor? Paul says, this is the mindset you're to have, church, towards one another. 
Then he goes in in verse 4 and says basically the only way that that mindset is possible is because Jesus had it first. Because of Jesus. Let this mind be in you who, which was in Jesus, who for your sake. He humbled himself, stepping down from heaven, and not only that, taking on the form of a bondservant, not only that, but he became obedient. Not only that, he was obedient to the point of death, not just any death, but the death on the cross. And because of his humility unto death, then God has exalted him. And so what Paul says in Philippians 2 is, have this mindset towards one another, and the way that you can, the reason that it is possible is not by you trying harder but it is by you surrendering to Jesus who has gone before you. You see, there is something about the gospel, there is something about the cross that transforms us. There is a power in the gospel that even changes our desires and enables us to live in a way that we could never self-will ourselves into. Now, there are many people that are trying to do religion. They are trying to be better. They are trying to be good And they're weary and they're worn out and they suffer under the burden of legalism. But then there is a God who has given his son whose name is Jesus. And Jesus did not just come to put on a light show and say, see you later. Jesus came to change us for all eternity. And he did that through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And the promise of God is that if we truly come to him, then we're changed by him. And so we talk frequently about, as believers in Jesus Christ, that the way that we know we're saved is what? By faith. Right? It's by faith that we're saved. But here's the follow-up question. But how do you know if you have genuine faith? How do you know if you're actually saved? Jesus said it's by your fruit that you'll be known if you're his disciple or not. So here's the way that you know if your faith is genuine. Have your desires changed? Do you long for the things of God? Do the things that you once did that were sinful, are they disgusting to you now? Do you have a hunger for God's word? Do you find yourself reading God's word where maybe before it had no interest to you? Do you find yourself wanting to serve others, to forgive your enemies, to love people that are difficult for you? Is the fruit of God in your life? Because what Jesus says is that we'll be known by our fruit. And so if your faith is genuine, then that faith should be producing the life of God in you. And if it's not, Jesus said this as well. Many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord. But I will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And so on this Sunday, this graduate recognition day, this day as we're looking at this message from Micah, this message is not a message of do better. This message is a message of look into the eyes of Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you. Be transformed by his power. Walk in the presence of God, doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly with your God. All of these things are picturing Jesus. Jesus. And as we draw near to Jesus, we are transformed by him. And we will walk this way. 
And it is a warning that if you're not walking this way and you don't have a desire to walk this way, then you must ask yourself, do I truly know Jesus at all? Because he promises to change you. So this morning, again, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God, not as a burden, but as an overflow of who God makes us in Jesus Christ. And that's going to look different for each of us. But the question is, what is the calling of God in your life? What is his calling on you as a mom, as a dad, as a child, as a student in this field and another field? It's not for us to judge one another's callings. But it is for us to understand our calling before God and to work that out in whatever career that God puts us in. And I close with where that verse 8 began. You know why? Because it's good. Do you remember how the verse began? He has shown you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Do you want to know the good life that God has in store for you? It won't be found apart from obedience to him. But what God has for you is good. Even if it involves trials, even if it involves tribulations, even if it involves, like we've been seeing in Revelation, giving our lives unto death. What God has made you for, what God has called you to do is good. Because for the believer, even if we give our life in his name, what awaits? A heavenly reward that no Disney movie could ever picture the magnificence of the treasure that awaits a child of God. And so, even if this world takes my life, all that awaits me is a reward that the God of the universe has prepared for me, and I get to enjoy him forever. And what's so bad about that? So a believer in Christ, what God has for you is good. But if you don't see your, trend, your heart and your desires and your will being transformed, we must ask ourselves, is my faith, was it ever actually a saving faith at all? But thank goodness for the God who has given his son that says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you please stand with me? The invitation this morning is, is pretty simple. First of all, I want you to ask yourself, is the fruit of God in my life? Did I just pray a prayer and am I trusting in the fact that I prayed a prayer to save me? Or has God been changing me? Do, is the fruit of God in my life? Am I truly a child of God? I'm not trying to scare anybody into heaven, nor am I trying to make you make an emotional appeal. I just want you to ask yourself, have I been transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If you haven't, well, we need to talk about that. But if you have, I want you to understand that what God is calling you to do is not about how hard you try. It is about allowing Jesus to transform you. And if you are transformed, you will be about justice and mercy, and the humility of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray. This is our time of response, to respond not to a person or a church, but to a living God who has spoken to us through his word. Do you remember how Micah 6 began? The word of the Lord. How will we respond to the word of the Lord? I'm going to pray, and as we sing, you respond. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you are good and what you want from us is good. 
Forgive us for doubting that. Lord, I know there are some here that they're just weary from life, and they're wondering, how does all this fit in? I'm doing my best, and I'm weary. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen those that are weary here today. I pray that we would stay connected together. You've given us the church to strengthen one another, to lift each other up. Maybe there are some that they, they're, they're back for Senior Sunday or they just came for whatever reason and, and they've been disconnected. And Lord, we need each other. Keep us connected with one another. Or maybe there are some that they're here today and they realize, look, I, I prayed a prayer, but I don't think the fruit of God has ever come out of my life. I've just been trying in my own strength. Lord, thank you that today as you give us life, your mercy is available to, to save us. Thank you that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you that you don't play favorites, you don't pick teams, but you are merciful and good. Lord, bless us in these moments with you, with you. May we be found obedient to your calling in this moment and in the moments that follow. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.